Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Because again, we have a very brief verse to read. Just four words. But we know the theme is throughout Scripture. And so I are turning there. I begin by just recognizing that the U.S. is... Excuse me, by any measure, the wealthiest, most powerful, and most influential country in the history of the world. It's not difficult to understand why so many immigrants want to come here to pursue their dreams. The United States is far and away the most likely destination for immigrants. It's five times more likely than the second country. And that's true of those wanting to come through legal channels as well as those who will risk their lives in order to cross the border illegally. Either people are feeling pushed out by oppression, uh, like oppressive regimes or they're being pulled by opportunities for economic prosperity. And so the image of the American dream remains a strong motivation for moving here. It's a good reason. However, something has been gaining interest over the past decade, really an obsession with the origins of America's prosperity. And for some, that interest goes back before the founding of our nation. Uh, Revisionist historians want to paint a timeline of our nation that's almost entirely evil, even before any of the founding documents were written. And so they point to various economic disparities as proof that our nation remains infected by racism from top to bottom. Really, we haven't made much progress. Racism's just shifted in the way it looks. So the only question for them is how we ought to go about correcting these disparities. The assumption is look at the disparities and you'll see racism. That's the only reason there would be disparities. It inevitably leads to a discussion about reparations. And so is the present generation responsible for paying reparations? Which is reparations is the the repayment of the devastating impact that chattel slavery had upon the black community. Now the subject of reparations was debated before Congress in June of last year. Uh, Just recently... I think earlier this week, in fact, uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom instituted a nine-member task force to study how we might practice reparations in this state. So it's a subject we're going to hear a lot more about. It seems almost inevitable that that some system will be developed in this state that will then eventually be replicated in every other state. As tends to be how things have, have worked. In an episode on uncommon knowledge by uh, Thomas Sowell makes the point that slavery has been a universal institution for thousands of years as far back as you can trace human history. But the situation is portrayed as if slavery is something that happened to one race in one country 
when in fact the spread of it was worldwide and included people from all ethnicities in almost every country on earth. Now that's not to excuse it, but that is to recognize that you can never repay adequately. It would be a shifting of the resources of everyone in, in the world. And we would need to repay. He goes on to say in that same episode that to provide reparations for slavery, we would need to repay half the population of the world presently. So the Eighth Commandment and the rest of Scripture speaks to this subject in fairly clear terms. Obviously, this is not a sermon about reparations. But the way we secure and distribute wealth as a nation ought to be influenced by the morality of owning private property and the protection of that property. So there's a biblical concept of restitution that does need to be acknowledged and discussed. It's not as simple as simply declaring that that reparations violates the Eighth Commandment. There's some factors that must be considered. And so we love our neighbor by valuing life. That's taught in the Sixth Commandment, you shall not kill. We value our neighbor's marriage in the seventh commandment, in our own marriage. We should not commit adultery. And we value the right of private property in the eighth commandment. Thou shalt not steal. Now, while love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, as we just read in 1 Timothy 6, it's possible to pursue money for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbor. So money is not the problem, but the sinful ways people oftentimes obtain money or spend money is the problem. So my goal is to encourage you to find contentment in gospel riches so that you will devote generous resources to the advancement of the gospel. There's there's an example here, right, that that money is just really a reflection of our heart, how we Obtain and spend that money as a reflection of what it is we treasure. So we'll see more of that later. But before we read this brief verse, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the relevance of your word, really, to the situations that we face today. We don't have to twist it into making it relevant. Your your word is always relevant. And so we want to simply understand the meaning of your word. We want to understand the original intent and then to apply it to our situation by your spirit. And so in order to do that, Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see that truth. Give us ears to hear and soften our hearts to respond in obedience to it. That we would be doers of your word and not hearers only. But may your word be effective and powerful. Do a work in our hearts, Lord. Bring conviction, but ultimately also provide that comfort that only your gospel can bring. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So read it with me, Exodus chapter 20, verse 15. You shall not steal. This is God's holy word. So as we've done in every other commandment, we will examine the positive implications this morning. 
and then we'll consider the negative aspects next week, the negative aspects of this command. And so I want to begin by, by thinking about fostering prosperity. So if you're following along in your outline, you'll see there are three points that begin with the term wealth. The first one is wealth allotment. Wealth allotment. Now for more in, far more important than sorting out reparations is the establishment of a just and equitable opportunity to generate wealth. Now, we should not hesitate to remove any barriers to economic opportunities as long as they are clearly defined and not some vague notions of things that oftentimes get defined as uh, racism today. Right, we shouldn't hesitate to remove those barriers if they are clearly defined and pointed to. If anyone's going to be held responsible for a crime, such as privilege, they should be proven guilty. What is the sin that they did? So the freedom to enjoy life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is not only defined by the Declaration of Independence. These are uh, as in, endowed by our Creator, as the Declar uh, Declaration of Independence says, but they are biblical principles. Right? All men are created after the image of God and given this cultural mandate to be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and to subdue it, to have dominion. It's from Genesis 1.28. And that certainly includes the pursuit of wealth. But it's not a reckless pursuit. It's not an all-encompassing pursuit that becomes your, your sole focus and purpose in life. And God told Adam to tend to the garden by working and caring for the land. It's, a, it's about stewarding the resources God has given us, managing them well. And so there's a principle of stewardship involved. We look out for the interests of others more than our own. And so the first thing I, I want to point out here that's also an implication of the cultural mandate is that if anyone lacks money, they should work. We looked at the creation ordinance of marriage the last two weeks, but another important ordinance that was given prior to the fall and is relevant to all humanity is the command to work. At work is the prescription that Paul gives to reform the thief so that he might become generous, Ephesians 4.28. So when Paul heard that there were idle busybodies in Thessalonica, he commanded such individuals to busy themselves quietly in their work to earn their own living. Uh, secondly, our income needs to be adequate to support our own family. And if we have relatives in need, we're to be that first point of provision for them. And the person who denies to support his family denies his faith. Paul is not shy about this. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 8 and 16, he makes it clear. And in verse 8, he says, it's, uh, one who denies supporting his family is worse than an unbeliever. He denies his faith. And so we should not be slack or slothful in our work. We should be diligent 
Proverbs 10, 4, and Romans 12, 11. Again, Proverbs 13, 22 says that a, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. So when you think about how much you need, it's not just to provide for your immediate family. It's are you making enough to set aside something for your children and their children? In the parable of the talents, Jesus promotes the value of investing and gaining interest. The one who just buried the talent didn't do anything. He said, at least you should have put it in a bank. I could have earned interest. So there's value in these very basic banking principles. At the same time, loving our neighbors means that we're not going to charge excessive interest. If we're the lender, we own the bank. If we're the banker, we're not going to charge excessive interest or take advantage of those in dire situations. And oftentimes that has happened. We have not operated based on Christian principles, biblical principles. So I want to say there's nothing wrong with having money as long as it's obtained honestly and then spent responsibly. Contracts for employment need to be honored on both sides. The employer needs to pay what, what he has committed to pay. But the employee... Or the contractor ought to accomplish the work that he was hired to perform. Not to be slack or slothful in that work, but to be diligent. And so where that has occurred, a proper rendering of what is owed should occur. Romans 13, 7. Pay to everyone whatever is their due. So all of this shows that the possessions of private property is a biblical concept, which means that communism and socialism are not. These secular ideologies do not work, and we ought to carefully consider Scripture's teaching before adopting or promoting the latest popular theory. Jeremiah's letter to the Babylonian exiles shows us that national welfare is something to prayerfully pursue. Because it leads to personal welfare. You're encouraged to pray for the betterment of your, the, the welfare of the nation in which you live. These were Babylonian exiles. They were captured. And they were told to pray for the welfare of Babylon. Because where it increases, you'll increase. So it's not wrong to earn an honest wage or even to pursue promotions and raises where they're warranted. A national prosperity was a covenant blessing promised to Israel. So possessions are good even though they can become idols, right? We have to be careful about our possessions. The rich are encouraged not to trust in their riches but to be generous and content. First Timothy 6, which we, which we just read. So the key is learning to enjoy contentment, and that's your second part of your outline, wealth contentment. Um, I was encouraged by a story I saw last week, um, and I think it happened early Sunday morning, maybe late Saturday night, but Chanel Wapner's store, Just My Essentials, in Old Town Clovis, which happens to be situated in the same place that the Clovis Book Nook used to be, right there in... Um, that tiny little 
section of Old Town Clovis. Um, it's not a large store, but it was vandalizing, graffitied with racial slurs. Whatever was not stolen was destroyed. And so one of the Clovis council members, Bob Whalen, he, he started a GoFundMe for her and, and set a goal of raising $5,000. And the generosity of the citizens of Clovis and probably beyond the city as well, it was remarkable. Rather than creating some sort of new tax law that would require citizens to repay for restoration projects, they chose to freely give to her need. And so in this GoFundMe page, I don't know how quickly it raised 5000 but when I checked, it was seven hours into the campaign and it had already raised $11,000. Within something like five days, it had raised $29,000 through 668 donors. These are things we should celebrate. It's a recognition that the, the, that the people are content, right? The, the fruit of contentment is generosity toward those in need. And that doesn't matter how much you have. It's, it's a contentment with what you have. And again, that doesn't mean you're not pursuing to have more in the sense of seeking promotions and raises and bettering the, your lot in life. But at every stage, wherever you are, you need to learn to be content and to be generous with what you have. Taking a percentage of what you've earned and giving back to those in need. We must learn to be content in order to willingly give, according to 1 John 3.17. We are to be generous givers with a particular heart for the needy. Now that comes up in several places in Proverbs, Proverbs 19.17 and 28.27. And then in Galatians we learn that that's especially to be true of believers, fellow believers, those within the household of faith. If we know someone in need, they are the first people we should be giving to outside of our immediate family. And so we're to give in secret, not drawing attention to our generosity. And sometimes that, that is unfortunately the norm, even for churches, to broadcast how they're showing love to their neighbors. And we can do so quietly. We can actually just befriend them and then help them and support them. And giving to the needy is one way we store up treasures in heaven. And so this voluntary giving was a characteristic of the early Christians who sold their possessions in order to provide for one another. You read that in Acts 2.45 as well as chapter 4, 34 through 36, where they were even selling their homes in order to provide for the needs of the community. The other apostles instructed Paul to remember the poor as part of his mission to the Gentiles. And Paul acknowledges that was what I was eager to do. Galatians 2.10. So this is, this is something we should recognize, right? We should want and desire to be loving in this way, to be generous with the resources God has given. And to, Paul passes on that instruction to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.18, again, which we read earlier. So this Voluntary giving extends into our offerings to the gifts, our, our offerings and gifts to the church, our gifts to God. Not giving anything to God is a grievous form of stealing, according to Malachi 3, 8 through 10. 
But the amount we give must not be compelled. It should be given cheerfully. That's what Paul tells the Corinthians. And so again, as I I said earlier, giving is an act of worship. It's an act of acknowledging that, that everything we have is from God. And we trust in him, not our money. We see examples of congregations in Macedonia and Achaia who raised support for the saints in Jerusalem who were suffering poverty. In Romans 15, 26, Paul commends the church in that way. And what makes this even more remarkable is that the Macedonian Christians were living in extreme poverty themselves. But but Paul says that they gave beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Paul was saying, no, no, you guys have your own needs. Don't, you know, I'll raise money from from other churches. And they said, no, please, let us contribute. Let us participate. It's a beautiful picture of trusting the Lord, even in the midst of their own poverty. We also know that the church in Philippi supported Paul in his ministry. Paul commends them for that in Philippians 4. The norm Paul establishes as well was that elders who shepherd and teach are to be paid. They're to, they're to pay the pastor, 1 Timothy 5. Again, in Galatians 6, he says those who, who learn from that teaching are expected to support the ministry. And so, yes, you can support other ministries beyond the church, but your first priority is to support the church in which you are being equipped. That makes the most sense. So this voluntary giving is far superior to any forced communism. It's also far more reflective of the generous heart of God. It's held out to us in the gospel. It's the overflow of a heart that's not striving after worldly goods, but is satisfied in Christ. And so due to the nature of the Lord's mission, Jesus gave up personal property and the pursuit of career and family. He he gave up the riches of heaven in order to grant us access to those riches for all eternity. It says it in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, which is a, a wonderful verse to turn to to explain the gospel to someone for you know the grace of our lord jesus christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich again the riches that we receive are the riches and glories that he grants us access to in his death on the cross the glories of heaven that await. So the gospel of Jesus Christ models for us the importance of sacrificial giving. Christ treasured the glory of God above everything else, and so his sacrifice represented that treasure. When we give, we show that our treasure is in heaven, not in money and worldly possessions. And so give in the direction that you want your heart to go. Kevin DeYoung makes that point. In his commentary on this text. And the where your 
treasure is, there your heart is, right? It's a reflection of your, your heart. He says, if you want your heart to go in a certain direction, place your treasure there. Your heart will follow. It's an implication of that. So there's a, a third aspect, and we'll, we'll close with this in your outline. The last one is wealth management. The Westminster Larger Catechism, question 141, concludes a, a lengthy list of duties required in the Eighth Commandment, and we've gone over many of those in this sermon already, but here's how it concludes. The answer says, and an endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward estate of others as well as our own. As believers, one of our duties is to endeavor just and lawful means of procuring, preserving, and furthering our own wealth and the wealth of others. So God has entrusted his children with talents that we are commanded to maintain and multiply through lawful endeavors. These resources ultimately belong to him, but we have them on loan and we will give an account for how we managed them. We don't live extravagantly, flaunting our wealth before others as so many televangelists do, prosperity preachers. We gratefully receive what God has entrusted to us and then we spend it for his glory and the furtherance of his kingdom purposes. And so we need to learn to steward those resources in such a way that we can share generously. Ultimately, our pursuit is eternal wealth, storing up treasure in heaven. J.V. Feskos, in his commentary, says this, if we truly value the riches of heaven and God's immeasurable love toward us in Christ, we will not take what does not belong to us, and belongs instead to God, but we will recognize how generous he has been with us. By the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, our desire will be to share our possessions, to share our time, to share our money with others. Our desire will be to love our neighbors. So again, those who find contentment in gospel riches will devote generous resources to its advancement, That becomes our mission because it's the mission that Christ has given to us in Matthew 28. What better way to store up treasures in heaven? So work diligently and then manage the resources God has granted you because you are content to look forward to the heavenly inheritance that awaits you. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept or reserved in heaven for you as peter says in first peter 1 3 through 4 so let's ask the lord to continue to bless us and our management of the resources he's given heavenly father we thank you for your word we thank you for the encouragement 
that you've given us in your word throughout scripture to manage the resources that you've provided. But we recognize that you own the cattle on a thousand hills, but that everything we have is from your hand. Every good and perfect gift has come down from you. And so we want to be generous with those gifts. We want to provide for our own family, to provide for our relatives who are in need. And to even go beyond that, to provide for those in our community. Cause us to be generous with the resources that you've provided. Help us to not promote ourselves or to promote our own generosity, but to do so quietly. To do so for your glory. And Lord, we pray that you would multiply the resources that are given to the furtherance of the ministry of this church. And may we use those resources wisely. And may we use them for kingdom purposes. Lord, help us to proclaim the gospel boldly, to continue to establish ministries that, that support the needy. And that can be in, in several different forms, in different ways. It does not require an extravagant operation, but simply a heart that desires to get to know those around us and to love them and serve them. Lord, so fill us with tender hearts that are merciful to those in need. Help us not to turn away from them, but to provide and to do so with, with uh, good stewardship of those resources. Lord, unfortunately, so many in our own culture, in our own nation, take advantage of generosity. They perpetuate their own cycle of poverty in the way they use those resources. So, Lord, help us to be wise in the way that we give. And to have expectations of how those gifts are used. And Lord, help us to train up to not just give and then ignore the person who received it, but Lord, to, to equip them, to disciple them, to go beyond providing financial resources, to, to, to give them the gospel. So Lord, use us in these ways. Again, for your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand. Our hymn of response is a new hymn, Lamb, Precious Lamb. And so if you have um, a Trinity Psalter hymnal in, in front of you and you can maybe, I don't know how to read music, but sometimes seeing where the little dots go up and down is helpful. Um, so if you have one, turn with me there to... 353, Lamb, Precious Lamb. And what we're going to do is allow um, the music team to lead us through the first verse, and then we'll repeat it. <laughs> 